Welcome to this, the second of our BMJ Christmas podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor. Last time we were discussing ideologies and moralities with Anthony Painter and AC Grayling. In this one, we're looking at health and happiness. We'll find out about the healing power of touch. She was in a state of sensory deprivation and no way to entertain herself or to pass the time for three months. And I guess that would make anyone go pretty crazy just staring at a ceiling. And the science of happiness. As far as heart disease is concerned, there's a, a lot of intensive work looking at depression because we know that people, particularly people who've had a heart attack, who are depressed are probably at higher risk for future heart attacks. As a society, we have fairly strict rules about touch, when it's appropriate, where it's not. When it comes to medicine, those rules become even more concrete and interactions that may involve physical contact become codified. But underneath all of our civilization and science, we're still primates. And a connection between a patient and a doctor can be reinforced by simply taking a hand. Robin Youngson, co-founder of Hearts in Healthcare, and Mitzi Blennerhassett, who has written extensively on patient engagement, have co-authored an editorial calling for the humanisation of medicine. And I talked to them about why they started to campaign for that. Well, uh, Duncan, this really began as a very personal motivation, because this is at a time when I was already a senior consultant. I had the experience of witnessing my 18-year-old daughter, Chloe, in hospital for three months after a serious car crash. She had broken her neck and her back, and as a result, ended up in a hospital bed in spinal traction for three months. And, and we're extremely grateful that she had really good clinical care, and she was under the care of a spinal surgeon that I, you know, was very competent, a very nice guy. And I, I in fact, I had her knees ties from many times. We've been in the, the operating room together. But what concerned me was the lack of attention to Chloe's really basic human needs. For instance, she was lying flat on her back with her head immobilized, and she could only see the ceiling of the room. And she couldn't see a television. She couldn't read a book or a magazine. She couldn't see out the window. Indeed, she couldn't see the faces of people who came into the room and and nursed her and touched her in, in sometimes intimate ways, unless they leaned right over her so she could see their face. So she was in a state of sensory deprivation and no way to entertain herself or to pass the time for three months, then I guess that would make anyone go pretty crazy just staring at a ceiling. And then we have a very efficient system to deliver a meal tray to a hospital room and take it away an hour later. But she could not see her food or reach it. And there were many times she was not fed, no one came. And um, she was losing weight rapidly in hospital. So to recover from serious injuries, you need really high quality nutrition to maintain her emotional well-being. You know, meals are something that human beings can look forward to to pass the time to something enjoyable. And the hospital utterly failed on those things. And even though I was a very powerful person in the system, I, I couldn't get the system to respond to those really basic human needs. And that kind of radicalized me because there were many caring doctors and nurses and therapists, but the system itself seemed to be utterly callous to really basic human needs. And Peter, what effect did that have on your daughter during her convalescence and perhaps afterwards? 
Well, fortunately, we were, you know, privileged parents. We we had money and a car and the, the ability to be there every day and support. And my wife, Meredith, created a kitchener room and cooked a tasty, nutritious food twice a day for 100 days. And that cost us more than $1,000 in car parking charges. But I, so our daughter made a very good physical recovery. And seven days after the traction was taken down, she actually walked unaided out of the hospital, which was extraordinary. And if we had not provided that support, she would have needed months of rehab. But the, the emotional and psychological wounds, I think, persisted for many years. And in subsequent times, she went through a serious suicidal illness um, from which she's now fully recovered and healed and is flourishing. And she, in fact, has written extensively and been on television and radio talking about her experience of mental illness. So, you know, the, the lack of care for the person really, I think, had a big emotional impact on her that, you know, showed up years later. Now, Mitzi, if we turn to you, uh, you've written about your experience, um, a particular moment in your care as someone who's had a cancer diagnosis. Uh, would you tell us what happened and what you were feeling then? Um, I'd been admitted to a cancer hospital. I'd never even heard of cancer hospitals before. I thought all hospitals were the same. Uh, I'd had the shock of a, a cancer diagnosis, which had spread. It was given to me in a very abrupt manner after false reassurances. And so I was waiting for a blood test alone in a corridor, very frightened, thinking I was going to die. When someone in a white coat came out, sat down, smiled, and as I said in the article, took hold of my hand. And Probably the textbooks tell you not to take hold of patients' hands. If he'd asked me if I wanted him to, I probably would have said, no, I'm fine, because I was trying to be brave. I was trying to be stoic, like most patients. It had a great impact on me because I, re I recalled that moment when he held my hand. Uh, and I said, oh, it's all right, I, I'm not nervous. And he said, that's OK, I'm enjoying it. And we both had a laugh and relaxed for a moment. but. Throughout my time as a cancer patient, whether I was in hospital or not, or in the years that followed, I recall that moment because I just had such a terrific need of a human touch. Yeah, and I think that story is particularly interesting because, as you said, Mitzi, the medical students, trainee nurses, um, they're always taught to ask before touching, and you know for good reason. Um, so there's this sort of central tension between kind of professionalizing and making care right on one side um, and at the same time maintaining that humanity that sort of instinctive reaction um, allowing that to happen Robin as someone who practices medicine and is calling for this how do you sort of walk that tightrope I really think we need to change some of our models and definitions of professionalism um, I wrote a blog earlier this year about one of my patients, um, a very tragic case, um, a woman who came to the anaesthetic clinic um, at term pregnancy the day before her elective C-section. And she came to the clinic to see the anaesthetist to plan her spinal anaesthetic for a, an elective C-section. And she said to the anaesthetist, I'm a little worried because I haven't heard my baby move today. And he said, not to worry, I'll just get the midwife to do a quick scan and reassure you. They did a scan and there was no fetal heart rate. So this woman had had a stillbirth one day before a planned elective caesarean section 
at term pregnancy in a perfectly normal, healthy pregnancy. And it fell to me the next day to have the job of anesthetizing her for a, for the C-section, knowing that the baby was dead. And I've never in 29 years of anesthetic practice had to do that before. And, and when I went to see the patient, she was in a room with her husband and her mum and her sister and other family members, and they're all extremely shocked and traumatized. So I took a great deal of care and gentleness in my introduction to make sure she knew who I was and what my role is, because a lot of people don't even know what the word anesthetist means, and they certainly can't spell it. And then I asked her permission to sit on the bed next to her, and she said yes. And then I held her hand, and then I told her that I had learned that she'd had some really devastating news. And I told her that I also felt extremely sad about that. And as I held her hand, we both had tears in our eyes. And, and I was not overcome with emotion. And I was not unprofessional in my view. But I was, as a human being, showing that I'm a doctor, I have emotions, and that I care very much that she's going through a really terrible tragedy. And then at the end of the consultation, I asked her if she would like to have a hug. And, and she said yes. And she really kind of clung on to me. And, and the next day, we took her to the operating room, and the case went well. And the day after that, um, she sent multiple messengers from the maternity unit to the operating room to tell me just how much my care meant to her in that tragic circumstance. So picking up on what both of you have said there, um, if there's someone listening to this who your message resonates with uh, and they want to start making a change tomorrow, you know, straight away, what do you think the first step they could do towards making that change? Um, yes, Duncan, there's a, a, a lot of small things we can do. And um, I teach a lot about the new science of positive psychology and, and how we achieve um, happiness and a good life. Because the science and the research shows that actually it's some very small things that can make a pronounced profound difference. So if if a doctor or nurse or therapist listening to this were to make a choice from tomorrow every single day to with great intention do one small act of kindness. And it's not a random act of kindness. You have to have your kind of radar turned on to just to notice someone that you can do a little thing for. Then this the the new science of, of positive psychology tells us that just doing one act of kindness each day in a deliberate way can make a tremendous difference to our mental health and well-being and provide some protection against burnout, which we know is so prevalent in healthcare. We know that between a third and a half of all doctors around the world have signs of burnout. And, and that's one of the other inhumanities of the system that we're really kind of saying needs to be addressed. So it's, um, and it could be something really little like seeing someone a bit lost in the corridor and instead of just walking past with the eyes down and stopping and saying, hello, you're looking a bit lost, uh, can I help you? And then introducing yourself. And then when someone asks to find Ward 14, instead of giving directions, take them by the arm and walking them to Ward 14. That might take you two minutes. That will give you a kind of warm glow in your own heart. Um, and it's just showing acts of kindness. And, and I remember so vividly the first day of Chloe's care in hospital, it's the tiny little things that are the hallmarks of compassion. You make a lot of journeys as a trauma victim on the first day from the trauma unit to the CT scanner to the operating room to intensive care, and it was a transit care nurse who took her on all those journeys. 
and we walked alongside the trolley with her. And on one of those journeys to the CT scanner, we went from one building to the next in our corridor, and there was a join in the floor, a metal strip. And this wonderful nurse, mindful of all her broken bones, stopped the trolley, and he lifted each wheel of the trolley individually over the join in the floor so that her, her broken bones wouldn't be jolted. That was 12 years ago. You hear the emotion in my voice mm -hmm. of the memory of that small act of kindness. So these tiny little acts of kindness and appreciation and gratitude are the things that make an enormous difference to patients and their families and make an enormous difference also to the joy and satisfaction and well-being of health practitioners. So that's, that's where to start. Robin Admitty's editorial, Humanizing Healthcare, is now available on thebmj.com and in the Christmas edition, out now. In our last interview, Robin Youngson talked about the evidence for compassion in healthcare and perhaps the research of our next guest can be added to his arsenal of references. Andrew Steptoe is the British Heart Foundation Professor of Psychology at University College London and he and colleagues have been using a large cohort study to measure the link between overall happiness and health. Now, you've been studying uh, health and happiness, and your uh, article published this week built on previous work. So what do we know about this link between the sort of psychological uh, well-being and biological well-being? Well, there's been a growing interest in the role of psychological factors uh, in a broad way in uh, relation to physical health uh, and a lot of work over the last 20 or 30 years on stress and on depression and other negative states. Uh, what we've been interested in is whether the reverse is the case, that there may be some positive experiences that people have and positive states that they have, which could be protective uh, for their health uh, rather than bad things just making their health worse. Mm. And um, oh, as I said, you're, you're building on data that already exists for this. So um, can you sort of give us a very quick rundown of, of, you know, of those associations and, and how strong they are? Yes, what is typically done in this kind of study is to take a large sample of people and measure uh, happiness or well-being or, in our case, enjoyment of life uh, with a questionnaire or with a series of questions and then track people over time and see what happens to their health. Um, we've done studies of that sort and other people have as well, and there do seem to be positive associations. But one of the difficulties with that kind of study is that you only measure a person's subjective well-being on one occasion. And it could be that, you know, they've had a bad week or they've been had particularly good thing happening to them at that time. So that the measures that you get of that time may not be representative of how they often feel. So what we did in this study was to repeat our measures of enjoyment of life three times over a four-year period. So in that way, we could try and get an idea of a more sort of sustained level of well-being. Some people who are persistently uh, reported enjoying their lives a lot, some people who may have enjoyed it a bit of the time, and others who uh, enjoyed their life very little, and then followed up all those people uh, for their health later on. And um, just a quick thing about uh, that data set, um, it uses data from the English Longitudinal Study of Aging, um, which has been used for a lot of other work as well, isn't it? Yes, this is a study which we run 
uh, from uh, University College London in conjunction with the Institute for Fiscal Studies because uh, this uh, uh, set of, uh, uh, of data is used a lot for um, economic uh, studies as well. And it's basically a, a cohort of older people, uh, men and women aged 50 and older, uh, living in England. Uh, and they're followed up every two years uh, with uh, questionnaire measures, with bio biological measures and uh, other uh, types of assessment. So we can get an idea what happens to people as they move through retirement into older age uh, and uh, their experiences and health uh, at that time period. Mm. Um, now, uh, being a scientific paper, all your analysis and your methods and everything is online and I would say to people go and have a, a look because the uh, the data set that you've um, been using is, is very rich. Um, but if we just then jump to, to what you found when you started looking um, for any association, what did you what did you find? Yes, basically what we found is that um, there was quite a lot of variation in the number of times over this four-year period that people reported that they were enjoying their lives. So some people um, on all three occasions that we assessed people said they were, were enjoying their lives a lot, other people two, one, and, and there were indeed about a quarter of people who at none of the time points said that they were enjoying their life very much, which is um, disappointing and sad for people, uh, uh, for older people. What we found, interestingly, was that there was a, a kind of a dose-response association with mortality, so that the people who enjoyed their life more of the time had lower mortality over the next six to seven years than those people in the, the middle uh, who, uh, uh, you know, in turn had lower mortality than those who didn't enjoy their lives a lot at all. Now, obviously, when you do that sort of thing, you have to take account of all sorts of other factors. Uh, I mean, a, an obvious factor would be age. Uh, we know that on average, people who are you know, in their 70s and 80s are more likely to pass away than those who are in their 50s and 60s. And it could be that those older people just don't enjoy their lives so much. So that could be a, a clear sort of what we call confoundings in statistical terms between the two concepts. So we take uh, age into account, and we also take other factors like uh, a person's socioeconomic circumstances, uh, their initial state of health uh, and mobility and impairment and those sorts of things into account uh, when we do these analyses. And, and what we find is that even once we've taken account of those factors, we still see this association between uh, the uh, more sustained experience of enjoyment of life and uh, lower mortality. What do you think happiness here is actually measuring or that sort of contentedness in life? Do you think it's um, standing in as a proxy for, you know, being happier, being more active, going out, socialising, those kind of things? Or do you think there's some sort of biological mechanism going on? You know, wh why do you think this, this association may exist? Well, I think there are several different uh, processes that may be going on. It's true that enjoyment of life tends to be linked with a number of other things, uh, including social engagement and strong social relationships, which we know tend to be very important as far as health is concerned. It's probably related to better sleep and other types of experience as well. Um, there is uh, information uh, and, and uh, scientific research trying to relate happiness with things like greater degrees of physical activity, um, and there's a certain amount of evidence in, in favor of that. So it could be that one way in which 
enjoyment of life is health protective, is that it's associated with a, a healthier lifestyle. Um, at the same time, there's also interesting biological research uh, suggesting some fairly direct links between our experience of well-being and uh, biological mechanisms in relation to hormonal function and uh, inflammation and immune function, um, which could be, uh, again, a, an important pathway uh, in, in, in this process. So I think uh, both of those things might be, uh, might be important. Mm. Um, and as with all epidemiology, as you say, it's um, it's a messy picture. But given that uh, you found this sort of quite um, strong correlation, and given that in medicine, um, surrogate outcomes are measured all the time, what do you think about uh, the measure of happiness generally as a as a way of sort of gauging the health of of the population? <laughs> well, I think it's a, an interesting idea that I suspect that many GPs may balk at uh, just asking people about happiness instead of uh, measuring their blood pressure or whatever. But I do think that um, this kind of study does emphasize an important point, which is that our health system is very much concerned with fixing things that are wrong. Uh, and so in terms of mental states, we're concerned about people who are depressed or people who are anxious uh, and so on. But the fact that somebody is not depressed or not anxious doesn't actually mean that they're happy. Uh, they could be in a sort of you know, neutral state, neither one thing nor the other. And what research of this sort suggests is that uh, thinking about how we can actually improve the well-being of people, uh, you know, over and above the, the treatment of, of, of serious mental uh, ill health, uh, may well pay, play uh, you know, a, a important dividends for the future, I think, as far as health and well-being are concerned. Mm. Um, and then I just wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you're a British Heart Foundation professor of psychology, so uh, I, people would assume perhaps that they would fund uh, professorships in cardiology or something. This must be something that, that um, they're particularly interested in. Yes, I've, I've have been uh, the British Heart Foundation professor for a number of years now, and I think it was because the the British Heart Foundation recognised that emotional factors are very relevant in heart disease. In fact, as far as heart disease is concerned, there's a, a lot of intensive work looking at depression because we know that people, particularly people who've had a heart attack, who are depressed, are probably at higher risk for future heart attacks. And so there's been a lot of concern about how people respond emotionally and how doctors can recognize that. What this kind of work here does is, is, to, is, is, is to look at the other side of that and to think about whether uh, people who have particular kind of high levels of enjoyment in their lives, maybe they're protected a bit more as far as heart disease and other serious illnesses are concerned. And again, that article, Sustained Enjoyment of Life and Mortality at Older Ages, Analysis of the English Longitudinal Study of Aging is now available on thebmj.com. That's all for this episode. Next time, we'll be back swearing on our BNF, the truth, post-truth, and nothing like the truth. So you don't miss out, subscribe on iTunes, and you can find our full back catalogue on SoundCloud, including the first of our Christmas 2016 podcasts. I've been Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.